Good evening, good afternoon, good evening, good day, good morning, and welcome to Tales in Our Times. My name's Janet. Obviously, I don't know what time of day it is. Go on, George. Good morning, even in case we didn't say it. Good morning and good evening. <laughs> I'm George. I don't believe in time. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was George. I'm Janet. Uh, this is uh, another episode of Tales in Our Times. We just cannot stop making these because we have such a good time doing it, regardless of, you know, who's listening or isn't listening. Fair. A flimsy excuse to get on the phone and chat shit for an hour. Yeah. It's sure. a grand time. It's all good. Um, so let's jump right into our order of service. George, uh, let's do a reading check-in. What are you reading right now? Right now, I am reading The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet by Becky Chambers. Uh, it is a sci-fi novel with uh, just a ton of character, both literally and sort of just in its writing. There are some amazing characters as the crew of this ship. Uh, written by Becky Chambers, uh, the progeny of an astrobile biology educator an aerospace engineer and an apollo era rocket scientist so there's like a love of the stars that is really written into this um yeah i i i'm adoring it so far and maybe a quarter of the way through sounds like a lot of space science right there so much space well i'm still reading the return of fariz ali i'll be honest um i've got a whole stack of books trying to get to but I, I just, I don't know. I need to pick up the pace is what I need to do, especially as somebody said not that long ago that we do read quite fast. So I'm going to have to prove now them correct. Now we're proving correct. them wrong. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure, for sure. So um, I'm still reading that. I'm still enjoying it. Um, I just need to focus. But there you go. And the weather's changed. It was really hot and sunny last week, and now it's a bit grey and cold. So, uh, you know, maybe I'll be indoors reading more now. It's a great time to read. Snuggled up while the rain goes crazy oh, outside. Love Ooh, that. That's the best. Yeah. Okay. So that's what we're reading. Let's jump into the literary news. We've got quite a bit today. We've got some big news and some little news. I'm going to start with a little news. Um, and a just news bush. Uh, and a news bush. <laughs> news bush. <laughs> <laughs> and a news right. news. <laughs> Are you done? <laughs> it's my turn now. An amused news bouge. <laughs> okay. Sorry, I'm finished acting like a douche. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm just going to start with a little uh, literary nugget that I came across. Um, a little sad, something to me, a little sad or, or not. You just, you know, whatever. Public <laughs> libraries in Northern Ireland reported recently that... They cannot afford new books for their libraries because of um, underfunding from local government. And I'm sure that that is a tale that probably resonates with people in all different parts of the world. But that was one that I just happened to come across in the news. Um, so I hope that that situation improves for them. That's awful. Yeah. I do appreciate that you gave the listener an out by saying, or not, maybe it doesn't make you sad, as if anyone was like, yes, lose your books, public <laughs> libraries, while I twist my evil little moustache. Maybe so. I mean, and, you know. And you're allowed to listen, too, technically. Yeah. I mean, I would imagine if you're listening to this, you are quite into libraries, but, you know. Yeah. We all have our own opinions. Um, <laughs> next, a little. This is a bit of a bigger piece of literary news. So, the 2023 Booker Prize shortlist was um, announced uh, in the past week. Not the plastered week. The past week. <laughs> um, the winners will be announced in November. So these six books um, get like a minor award i think they get like a couple of thousand dollars each and then the um the actual winner gets a much bigger reward um and but i thought it would be you know good to share we're always looking for new books um new authors 
So I thought I would pull that one up. And just in case you don't know, the Booker Prize is a, a prize that's awarded in the UK. Um, and to qualify for uh, consideration, you have to be a writer, can be from anywhere in the world, but your book has to be published in the UK. That is the criteria. Um, so I'm just going to zip through kind of thing, because like I say, you know, quite uh, interesting because I don't recognize any of these authors. Yes, you at the back, you have your hand up. Is it called the Booker Prize because they're the best at booking? Because <laughs> that would be books. good, but I I honestly um, don't think so. I think this it's whole thing is a sham. It, it's. Um, uh, oh gosh, you know I was, I've always uh, wanted to say I I I I've always wanted to be able to say I'm a best-selling booker. <laughs> you are a bit of a booker, but um, whoa. <laughs> Let me just get through the book list, okay? You yeah, know yeah, what? go on, go on. I am really okay. interested to hear about these books, so give me. So number one of the six finalists was called is called Western Lane by Chetna Maru. Uh, there's an author from the UK and it's a story about the an immigrant father who's attempting to raise his family as a single parent, which I think is, you know, quite a strong story. And like the the little snippets I'm going to give as descriptions are really short. So if you're interested, we will add them to our book list and you can go look yourself. The second one is called Prophet Song by Paul Lynch. Um and he comes from Ireland, and this was uh, about a mother's story. So it's kind of funny. We started with a, a father's story, and now this is a mother's story. Um, We've actually um, rigged the Booker Prize. These are all just uh, yeah, books yeah, that yeah. are based on episodes of ours. So we've got the Mother's Day episode, the Father's Day. No, sorry. Uh, As if we've gone on long enough to have a meta narrative. <laughs> The third finalist is The Beasting by Paul Murray, again from Ireland. And this is an Irish family in crisis, um, not wanting to stereotype, but is there any other kind of Irish family? Wow. <laughs> I say that, you know, being related to a lot of um, Irish uh, yeah, people. Yeah, we'll not be having that on the podcast. Thanks very much. Uh, I was going to try and mimic an Irish accent, but I don't want anybody to be even more insulted than they might be. What's that for number four on the Them Their Booker Prize? Them Their Booker Prize. Number four, Study for Obedience, which I think is just a fantastic title, starters. Um, Sarah Bernstein from Canada. A woman drops everything to be with her elder brother following the collapse of his marriage. So she, from what I read about this, she actually moves um location to be with her elder brother i think that is huge i wish i could say that i would do that for one of my brothers because i do have brothers but um i'm not there yet <laughs> maybe <laughs> maybe i'd like to think that i did but um but this reminds I, me I, of that story from the chumbawamba album maybe if we had a drink together and could get to know you. I'd have your face tattooed on my arm tomorrow morning. <laughs> <laughs> but not now. No, and um, I think you need to put that story in context. No, 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 it's fine. Well, that was one of the members of the band who uh, was quoting on the fact that somebody had a Chumbawamba tattoo on their back or on there on their arms all up and down his arms four faces on each arm oh. so all eight members of chumbawamba up and down his arms he came to a show in berlin with a cut off t-shirt and was just sort of like look at me and they all went that oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> what do you do what do you do when someone does that oh thanks very much for having my face tattooed on your arm <laughs> That's really nice of you. And of course, we we do we do quote that because we are avid fans of Chumbawamba, even though you know we are aware that they split in two thousand eleven. But we did get to see them before. That's true. Yeah, yeah. this is just, part of our narrative as a family. Yeah, is that we love Chumbawamba. <laughs> We're big Chumbawamba Absolutely. fans. We're big Arctic Monkeys fans. Not in the mm. same vein, but just like two. Those are those are pieces similar location of background. Oh yeah, true. 
right, what okay, about these books? Moving on, number five. <laughs> if I Survive You by Jonathan Escoffery from the United States. Again, another bloody amazing title. Uh, if I Survive You, if. that <laughs> To me, that's just really powerful. But it's oh, yeah. a collection of linked stories, and that kind of grabs my attention because not really a short story person, but I like it when you get lots of stories that all kind of connect to each other. The through um, line sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's focused on one family's tempest-tossed journeys in Jamaica and Florida. And, of course, we all love a bit of Florida narrative, so can't go wrong there. I do love a Florida narrative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we should do an fun. episode on Florida man narratives. We should. Maybe. Uh, finally, the final finalist, uh, number six, is called This Other Eden by Paul Hardin. Again, another United States author. And it's a tale of racism on an isolated island off the coast of Maine. No, not possible. <laughs> racism I mean, in, a, in an isolated place in America? I don't believe it. I mean, an I like, isolated... I like the title on that one as well, This Other Eden. It's other very, reading, yeah. It's very, it's, it's ominous. It feels scary. Yeah. I mean, tales of racism on any isolated island off the coast of anywhere, I think you could already imagine. So, um, so, and that's, so that's the six finalists. Like I said, the winners will be announced in November. Look out for those. And if you're interested, why not try one of those books? Let us know what you think. Uh, George, you've got a news item for me. I got the big piece of news. I got Woo! the entree. I got the the main course. I don't have any puns like I did for a mousse-bouche. There were just so many. I really peaked early there. Following up on our continuing coverage of the WGA SAG-AFTRA strike in the U.S., um, tremendous news. The WGA and AMPTP have reached a tentative agreement. Woo! Um, so this, just to be clear, uh, still has to be voted on. They, it is tentative. They are not locked into anything yet. And SAG-AFTRA, notably, are still striking. Um, I know that there's also word of the Animators Guild drumming up a strike because their uh, contract is up for renegotiation. So there is still work to be done. But it is tremendous news for the writers to have that tentative agreement in place. Um, all of the press I've seen about it coming out of the WGA is that they are very happy and that they have seen a very positive response to many of their uh, requirements for this agreement. So tremendous stuff. Just, you know, a real, a real exciting turn. Sometimes history goes good. <laughs> it's, it feels very <laughs> rare. But sometimes I mean, things go sort of good. And we've been following this for a while. And hopefully by the time this is posted, maybe they will have, um, you know, uh, signed off on it and it will be, you know, in place. I hope that that is the case. Um, we're in yeah, the third I'm, week of September now. So, you know. I am admittedly unknowledgeable uh, uh, about what the process from here is going to be like. But we shall see. Yeah. I mean, it's quite it's quite cool. I feel like that we started following this when we first started recording, and we've actually got to a point, hopefully, where they are going to reach some resolution. I'm quite pleased about that. It's pretty it's pretty astounding. It's an astounding moment for labor rights in the U.S. Uh, and I just wanted to bring that up because it kind of ties into where you're about to take us. I am so I. <laughs> Yeah, I am kind of sort of going to take you into something to do with labour rights, definitely to do with, um, you know, economic and um, social changes and how literature can come out of those things. Um, yeah, what are we talking about today, Mum? Well, like I said, when I was thinking about the introduction of this, I was thinking, oh, it's a twofer. But it's not really a twofer because it's more of a one and a halfer because <coughs> I'm... Classic phrase. Yeah, I know. I know. It's like buy one, get one half off or something. Or, oh, there you go. Yeah. Uh, put it in terms I can understand. What would this be like in a grocery market? Yeah, exactly. Um, so 
what I'm mainly talking about today is a, um, a movement from the United Kingdom in the 1950s and 60s. But before I don't jump into that, I have to kind of come back a few years because there was something similar that occurred in the United States in the early part of the 20th century. And it was Gasp. known as the... What? Gasp, a history to a history. A history to a history, yeah. Um, it was called the Ashcan Movement, and it was an artistic movement concerned with real life in the USA, real life experiencing the vast sort of, not vast, but um, fast, perhaps would be more appropriate, social, cultural, economic, and industrial change that occurred around the turn of the century. Um, increasing numbers of immigrants coming into the country, increasing numbers of people living in big cities and out of rural areas. Um, and all of these things added to uh, this new uh, modern civilizational society for regular Americans, you know, who'd lived sort of pretty simple lives to a certain point, And then, you know, things speeded up. New industrialization, urbanization, all these isations going on. <laughs> anyway, so this group of artists, um, they wanted to capture real life in this new century. And they were most interested in depicting um, culturally rich uh, lower class people, in, in certain cases, uh, immigrants, rather than like uh, the rich Fifth Avenue type residents of large cities. Not everybody appreciated this movement. Um, it was quoted as um, one commentator quoted it as the apostles of ugliness. There was lots of pictures of or paintings of bathrooms and toilets and kitchens. And okay, but apostles of ugliness—that's going on my collarbone tattoo list for sure that <laughs> goes hard as nails i'm an apostle of ugliness why is nobody called a band the apostles of ugliness it's just you know Tough. but i think it's i think it's rock hard but obviously it was meant as a an insult um, at the time and criticism but the these people kind. were trying to they were trying to focus on real life real people um in the early 20th century now like i say um they did a lot of uh paintings of um domestic scenes such as kitchens and bathrooms which kind of yes you in the oh, back sorry i <laughs> was that sort of where the name ash can came from yeah was that so like like an ashtray in the in the bowels of the city the bowels very good Dirty. Um, there was one notable uh, novel that I came across um, while I was doing some research for this from this period in the US. Uh, Maggie, A Girl of the Streets. So really, um, it was published in 1893. The author was Stephen Crane, who died before he was 30, I believe. But it was about a little girl who had, you know, an abusive home life. And then she went into a... Um, living on the streets and then she met a guy and he was abusive and she ended up um, working as a sex worker, you know, and so it's really sort of gritty subject matter. And um, I think that, that if you can hold on to that thought, dear listener, if you're listening to me now, hold on to that thought because it will take us right into what I'm going to start talking about on the other side of the pond. Another book that was quoted as part of this was The Adventures, and I think this is kind of funny, but it's The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain, because I grew up with, you know, Tom Sawyer, The Adventures of Huck Finn, and they were like children's stories, and that was as much as they meant to me. At the time, you know, Mark Twain wrote those books uh, focusing on the sort of um, regional dialects and accents and and the way mm. of life it was very different from um this new sort of modern world so that was included as part of you know this ashcan movement so now we're going to get busy ah into the first history and so that was your half that was your background half 
Okay. Um, <laughs> that was oh, your half off. Gotcha. Half off. I did want to say, though, um, this Ashkan movement in the early 20th century as well was quoted as being influenced by Walt Whitman's poem, uh, or it was really a series of very, very long poems, Leaves of Grass, which focused a lot on the sort of negative side of um, modern American society. So just dropping that one in there is another one for you to look at if you're interested. Um, so we talked about those artists painting domestic scenes, kitchens, blah, 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 blah. In the Ash United Kingdom. Ashcans. Sure, yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, like the um, in big cities, you've got those alleyways that go between huge apartment blocks and things. Yeah. A pictures from, from those sort of scenes. So in the UK, about 50 years later, you know, I'm <laughs> just saying, you know, I don't know whether or not things, you know, social changes in the world happen like with a knock-on effect. I remember when I first came to America, people were always shouting, not shouting at me, but quoting at me, you know, America sneezes and Europe or the UK more specifically gets a cold. And so I don't know whether or not this is an early example of like some kind of knock-on ripple effect. Who knows? Anyway. We're not historians. Point. No, we're not really. Um, we read fiction. We do. and But <laughs> the joy of this is there is a lot of fiction. And um, if you've got the stomach for it, it's really well worth it. I feel like you keep promising me this fiction. I haven't heard anything about fiction yet. All right, it's coming. Well, I did just mention a couple of you were paying attention in America. I wasn't. But now we're, we're going to jump the pond. Um, so... The first part of this discussion is not going to be about writing in the same way that See, yep. the Ashcan movement was um, a lot of visual artists who, you know, did paintings, what have you. So the movement in the UK was called or started from the kitchen sink realism, which was a cultural movement. I love that for a name. Kitchen sink realism. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean you could use that today, I think. Anyway, so it started... Um, in the 1950s, continued into the 1960s, and was rooted in the ideals of social realism, which was an artistic movement um, expressed in, you know, works of art depicting working class activities. Now, um, just sort of, I hate going backwards and forwards, but I'm going to anyway. Um, but the, the American movement, although there were some, um, some of the artists involved did have specific political views. The movement itself did not sort of like use that as one of its sort of basic uh, tenets, if you like. Although... The Ashcan movement? Yeah. But, I mean, I don't know whether or not you can say, if you're looking at like the inequalities in society, how you can say that isn't political, I don't know. But anyway, so this art movement in the UK, um, again, they said that, you know, they had similarities with socialist views um but they were more concerned with art that shows subjects of social concern rather than a glorification of socialist values such as liberation of the proletariat so they oh, weren't sure. about they weren't about lifting people up and you know fighting for equality they just wanted to point out where those equalities were i think that's my sort of interpretation if you don't agree with me you can go look it up and tell me something different well, it sounds it sounds a lot like they were they weren't trying to do it as a political movement or a change, but just to spotlight the people who needed help. Yeah. Because that was like their own I mean, you could be about to tell me that this was all done by people at like the upper crusts of society, but it seems like it's people reflecting their surroundings onto their art. Absolutely. Um, I would agree with that, but I would just hold that thought for a second. Um, oh, so social good. realism artists were dissatisfied with the life of the working classes and the world that they lived in, their living conditions, you know, the, the poverty. Um, so in part, it was a rebellion or reaction against the sort of more romanticist um, artists of previous centuries or decades even, who supported ideas of ineffable beauty and the truth of art and music 
you know, often they would turn them into like spiritual ideals because the world is just a beautiful place and everything is just lovely. And and the social realism movement was more about, you know, well, without wanting to sound like I'm trying to make a pun, but, you know, let's get real um, with some realism, I guess. I don't know. Boo. Anyway. So they sympathize. Mike, if you could add booze, hisses. <laughs> um. No, you don't have to do that, Mike. It's fine. Um, so similarly to the um, apostles of ugliness, the social realists sympathize more with the ugly. Yeah. Ugly. Oh, uh, Mike, can you uh, fix that? Uglier sides of society, particularly the working sides class of people. society that wore UGG boots. <laughs> they didn't have UGG boots by then. And even you if don't they know did, that. they would have been in Australia and they wouldn't have got them in England. So there. There might have been a shoemaker called UGG. <laughs> <laughs> Can you just let me focus on my bloody history no sorry (laughs) i didn't have to do research for this episode so i'm having a laugh go on i don't mean to keep cutting you you off this is really interesting i love and also funny about it is pretty funny but yeah i i do love an art movement with a basis or just a interest in social realism that's that's seems healthy it doesn't feel good to uh you know i mean to the romantist what is it yeah, they they say, you hear people saying often when they're talking about different um, mediums of of art that you know does art reflect society or society reflect art or whatever. So I you know I think this kind of feeds into that idea. Um, so they you know they focused on the and you know the word ugly. I'm not sure as I really like that really in this particular um, context. I think more. And I don't want to, I'm trying to look for an adjective that's not <laughs> negative. They're all pejorative. Yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, oh, grimy, yeah. dirty. Yeah. No, that's all wrong. Unpleasant. Uh, it's like, uh, it's, it's like uh, unfortunate. Yeah, I don't, I, it's like non aesthetic, like non aestheticized. Like yeah. When you aren't, when you aren't living with a picture standard, like a, a, the appearance of so much that that is when things start to you know when when you have to deal with realism of the realism of being in society things start to fall by the wayside and the picture falls apart a little bit so i don't know maybe something i mean i i think um uh, I it appear it always appealed to me, and we'll we'll get on to the actual stories that were written in this genre. You keep story. saying that. I I know I'm, I know I'm lying, obviously. Um, yeah. But I think it was it was not so taking that word uglier sides of society, but the sort of people who weren't necessarily getting the most out of the world at this time. You know, they were you know having to work. 23 hours a day or whatever just to get by so um the setting for these narratives not surprisingly was um usually in poorer areas of the united kingdom based around uh, mining and steel industrial communities um heavy industries that used to be the backbone of the united kingdom of course you know margaret thatcher took all that away but that's another story um (laughs) but they also um a lot of these Narratives were turned into films at the time, and the films always uh, had actors with very strong regional accents, so that they, you know, they showed uh, uh, accurate. And we've talked about accuracy in literature before, but they showed an accurate image of what this life was like, who these people were, what they sounded like, how they lived, all that sort of stuff. Um, subjects in these stories addressed that many taboos so they looked at things that really you know if you think about it in comparison to like the romanticist where everything was just lovely and everybody lived after yeah, yeah. and lived in nice houses and wore pretty dresses you know they didn't address things like adultery or you know sex outside of marriage or abortion or crime and that is exactly where these writers went. They were like, yep, that's what we're doing. All of those things. Originally, the kitchen sink term was coined from an expressionist painter called John Brailby, 
who painted various kitchen, bathroom, toilet paintings, included images of people looking desperate and unsightly. Now, if you look up, you can look up his paintings online, and I have seen them, and I'm not sure how you make somebody look desperate and unsightly, but you can often see these images of, like, drawn faces. I'm I'm making movements with my hands like the listener can see me doing this yeah. now, but, but sort of Excellent drawn for figures. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Um, <laughs> kitchen realism artist painted rubbish bins, beer bottles. Um, in 1954, there was a journalist or critic David Sylvester, who wrote um, in reference to John Brailby's work and said that there was a new interest in domestic scenes from young artists that stressed the banality of life. Now, I I really like that phrase, banality Mm. of life, because regardless of whether you think it's beautiful and appealing or a bit dour and and depressing. you got to take out the trash. You got to take You have out. to do your dishes. You have to. You go into the sink at some point. And you know, and let's face it, boys and girls, day to day life often is very banal. You know. That's a good day. You get up every morning. You go to work. You eat your dinner. You go to bed. You know. You tell yourself you're going to wash the dishes. You don't wash the dishes. They stay in the <laughs> sink. You'll get to it eventually. Well, maybe some of us do that. I don't. Maybe projecting. That. Okay. Um, so I, I really like that phrase um, because I think banality, it does not necessarily a negative thing. It's just routine. It's commonplace. It's, you know, it's what happens. Um, so pre-1950s, again, going back to the Romanticists, um, the working classes were depicted by the likes of uh, comedy writer Noel Coward as a stereotype that didn't fit comfortably in civilized society. You know, they were the sort of like bringing messages to the door type characters or they weren't uh, valid, I guess, is the point in his writing and in the writing. Um, this, this genre, this kitchen sink movement, worked in opposition to what was known as the well-made play of the early 19th century. The well-made play, again, it, very round, very pretty, very accessible Oh, I thought you were going to tell me which play was the well-made play. You oh, no, mean that, like, that's a well-made. The, I see, I see. Like a, yeah, like yeah, a yeah, yeah. categorization. Drawing room dramas. Is that, is that a term? Mm. Yeah. Okay, almost I, it, like... It brings an image to my head. Yeah. I mean, it makes me think of the importance of being earnest, but that was quite funny. So it, it carries a lot. I wouldn't want to say that that didn't carry any um, weight because I think it does. But so the simple motive of the change of these uh, kitchen sink dramas was um, labelled as radical and anarchic. Who doesn't like a bit of anarchy? How dare you make me look at the garbage? I should kill you. Uh, You anarchist, you just want to spill garbage all over the street. Make me watch stuff that's not happy. It's rich people having to look at where dishes are done for the first time and go, ah, my eyes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, So in 1956, John Osborne wrote the play Look Back in Anger, which was based around the life situation of an educated working class young man who's married to a middle class woman and his disillusionment that he finds with this situation. He works in a manual job despite being a graduate deals with social alienation, claustrophobia of the small life, living on a low income. And I think... That's, you know, I mean, that's a who, great setup for a story. I feel like we've seen that a few times. Like, yeah. That's, I mean, it's like... I mean, the character in this was a young man, so he was probably in his 20s, but it, it almost feeds into the idea of, like, teenage angst and, um, you know, that sort of disillusionment with your lot... Um, he wrote, so, um, oh, yeah, so Osborne triggered the naming of um, a group called the Angry Young Men, who were like a group of... Oh, there we go. ...of British writers um, who came to prominence at this time. They were characterised by their disillusionment, disillusionment with British society and its traditional values. 
So, you you know, it really is sort of based around that sort of feeling of a need to rebel and, you know, break down the barriers between classes. Because I think um, one of the differences between the US and the UK is that the class divides in the UK were very clear. I, I mean, I can remember growing up and being aware of differences between people who lived in their own houses or people who lived in, you know, government provided houses. I mean, I don't know if this is accurate because obviously you remember your childhood with rose tinted glasses, but I feel like I moved between classes because I had family members who lived in um, council houses and, it, you know, I was born into a uh, the equivalent of a council house, but it was a mining house. So uh, I, I never, I don't think I sort of made a thing about it, but I do think that class distinction in the UK was uh, very pronounced. I'm not sure if it's the same now. There's a, you know, because there has been a change in Western society in people's ability to sort of be socially mobile, you know. Mm. Sorry, and I just kind of went off I mean, then. <laughs> this is this is a bit yeah, we should get back to books in a second here. Um from my experience, the the difference in the US is that it really does feel like poverty is lurking around every corner. It's less about like, oh, this you know, because anyone can have the items that I would signify with wealth. You know, you can have a home, you can have like high end technology or whatever. But I've never met anyone or I've I I have always stayed for the most part below the class divide of people who are worried about money and the people who are not worried about money. Yeah. I mean, I think we're probably classic examples of what is coined in this country as the middle class. Now, when I was growing up in the UK, the middle class were people who had money. They weren't just yeah. getting by and, you know, doing OK. They had money. That was like a step up. So, again, there's that difference. Um, but back to what we're talking about. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, some but, books. So some books. <laughs> Breaking away uh, from British society, traditional values. Um, this intense class hatred was thought to have changed the course of British theatre. And critic John Russell Taylor coined the phrase, Angry theater, which is another one I really like. It's like Ugh. get that tattooed on your collarbones. Angry so this is theater. the this is talking about the angry young men writers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, like they wanted I'll to have put to do all the whole other narrative. Harsh, a whole other episode. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that's kind of the background. You know, you've got like a historical link to a movement that occurred in the U.S. in the early twentieth uh, century. And then you've got all of these writers in the UK going, it's not right. Poor people live with ugly furniture or something. <laughs> <laughs> and they have outside toilets. But um, <laughs> how, dare they? how dare they? Yes, my grandparents had an outside toilet. Anyway, so <laughs> but uh, just so to give you some examples, I'm going to talk through a few books and, and I've read, I think, think all of the books that I'm going to talk about when in my teens oh awesome in my teens I went through a phase of reading books that came from, even though I didn't know it I'd heard the um the term like kitchen sink drama but I you know I was a teenager so I was just like reading for pleasure as I wanted to like you do when you're a teenager sure. you've got nothing else um but they really um appealed to me because a lot of the uh, communities that they were set in well, ones that I was familiar with, you know, like uh, my family came from the north of England. My dad worked in a mine for the very early years of his uh, working life. The accents, the um, streets, the houses, they were all things that were really familiar to me. And even though a lot of the subject matter sort of specifics were things because I was only a teenager, what did I experience? Absolutely bugger all. But <laughs> um, but where they were set, it, it really appealed to me. And so um, that was how I um, started reading them, I guess, in my sort of mid-teens, about 15. So this is actually like a real, you came into this with a background in kitchen sink novels. That's really cool. Yeah. I hadn't even, I had not even heard 
hide nor hair of this artistic movement. So I'm, I'm, this has been awesome to learn so much about it. Even cooler that you have like, and I can tell you about all these books. So, yeah, so I picked three, um, like I say, I'm pretty familiar with all of them. The first one I'm going to talk about, I actually read not even a year ago, just because I stumbled across it. And I was like, oh, I remember that. Yeah, that was great. Um, So a British author called Alan Silito, who's from like uh, around Nottingham, I think, which is sort of the Midlands, but also it was a very industrial area, a lot of coal mining going on there. Um, He wrote a book called Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, which was later made into a film, just saying. But it told the story of a young um, young man, again, uh, who worked as a factory machinist living at home with his parents. And basically he was working to get money to go out and party on the weekend. Who can't relate to that? But um, unfortunately, he has a relationship with this married woman and she gets pregnant. <laughs> and so then he gets beaten up by her husband's family and ends up in hospital so it's not all easy, breezy, lemon squeezy. Who can't relate to that? Yeah, hopefully nobody can relate to the latter part of that description. But he's constantly sort of butting heads with his dad because his dad's very traditional. He's like, you know, why don't you want to go down the pub and just have a game of dominoes? He's like, oh, that's so boring. Um, <clears throat> they try and get him I involved. I don't like your friend's dad. <laughs> they try and get involved in get him involved with the local girl because they want him to get married and settle down and he doesn't want to do that. So it's, you know, it's pretty full on from start to finish. It was made into a film in 1960 with the um, Albert Finney playing the lead. Um, It definitely addresses the disenchantment of youth and the desire to rebel without taking any of the consequences, you know, going and having a relationship with somebody who's already married not even considering that she might get pregnant and, you know, her husband might not like it. <laughs> I assume so. So that, I was that, really, I was about to crow my agreement on that youth disenfranchisement and the desire to rebel bit. And then he started talking about adultery and I was like, well, I'm the, I might hold that back for me. Love I Albert can, Finney though. Yeah. We love Albert Finney. Best his I might soul. check that movie out. It's, it, it's in, so it's in and because of the time period all these films were in black and white which just adds to the sort of uh you know atmospherics of it but um it's it was a good film the book of course is even better so i would recommend that to anybody moving on and so that was written by alan silito who's obviously a guy the l-shaped oh, that room guy, that guy's is, last name is silly toes no it's just silly toe only one toe he only had one alan silly toe Alan Silito. Um, so the next one we'll talk about is The L-Shaped Room, which was written in 1960 by Lynn Reed Banks. Um, oh. Uh, go on. What do you want to say? I know say her. Yeah, yeah. How do That's, you know uh, her? From um, reading the Indian in the Covered series. And yeah, so later in the 1980s, she did write The Indian in the Covered. If you go to her website, because I'm a bit of a nerd, and so when I was researching this, I did go to her website, and um, she said, of course, you know, it's native peoples now when she was talking about those books, which was, I, I thought, pretty cool. Too. Oh, I like that. I like her call out. Yeah, that's. You know, she put that right out there. She's 94 years old now, this lady, and she is still writing. I'm just blown away. Anyway, let me talk about the book. The L-shaped room. So um, <laughs> it was the story of a young single woman who um, is. She, I think she's French and she's living in England and she finds a bedsit, you know, like, what do they call that here? A studio like where you have your bed and your, your kitchen and everything in one room. In one. Yep. So they're called bedsits. Um, and in Notting Hill, which, you know, in 1960 wasn't a big swanky suburb of London, but now, of course, it is very trendy and expensive. Um, so she she <laughs> she lives in this bedsit at the top of this old house, far from a um, native home of France. Um, and she finds out she's pregnant as she moves into this, and it's called it is an L-shaped attic room. So that where the title comes from, 
she finds out she's pregnant. She has no desire to get married, but then she visits the doctor and he just assumes her choices are either, you know, go marry the guy or have an abortion. And she's, but she's determined to have the child. She doesn't want either of those things, which, you know, even at that time, it doesn't seem that long ago, but was frowned upon. It was one of those things people didn't want to talk about. It was a little bit rough around the edges. I was um, going to say, you weren't joking when you said they talked a lot about extramarital Oh, babies. yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so All she, day. All day, dude. She, she lives in this house for like seven months leading up into the birth of her child. And yeah, the other residents, so, you know, this in itself, it, one of them is like a, a gay black trumpet player who she befriends and takes support from... Um, a penniless writer, but eventually, after she's had the baby, she returns home to France. But there are, and I only know this from looking at her website the other day, um, but there are um, two sequels to this book, which I'm interested in, because when I read it as a younger person, um, I was, you know, sort of like, oh, gosh, you know, because it, it was, even in the, what, early 1980s, to me, it was still quite shocking, you know, because I, I grew up in the country. You know. Anyway, are the are the sequels the R shaped room and the B shaped room? So she can no, do her initials. No, no. Lynn Reed Banks. They're not actually. They're not called. But um, but there are two sequels. I haven't read them, so I can't speak to those. But I believe also this was made into a film, but I haven't seen it. So so uh, you know, again, you're doing so no comment. You what? I just said so. No comment. So no comment on those books, no, or the film. But, on the um, film. Yeah. yeah, no comment on the film. But, you know, several issues come up just in that little sort of description of the book. In 1960, homosexuality was still illegal in the United Kingdom. It didn't become legal till I think, six, seven? Late 60s. That's crazy. That is crazy. But there are I mean, countries... it's still, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still crazy. That's still crazy, too. True, you know? true. Um, so, you know, having a gay character in a book is like, whoa, what are you doing? But it's reflecting society. It's an honest reflection of, of people who are living in the world, which is... Breaking the know. law, breaking the law. Mm -hmm. Being um, gay, doing crimes. Having no money and pretending you're a writer. Oh, my goodness. Terrible. Hey, now. Whoa. <laughs> I resent that. No, because you're not penniless. You've got a job. <laughs> That's true. I have many pennies. So, yeah. So, a lot of issues brought up just in that one book. Um, and I think the last, this is the last one I'm going to talk about. Uh, so, this was called um, A Kestrel for a Knave. Or it also became known as Kez when I read it, because we read this in school, I think, in secondary school, and um, was written by an author called Barry Hines, 1968. Again, it was made into a film. The film was really good. I remember the film and I remember the book. Um, the story is based around a young uh, teenager called Billy Casper, who's growing up in a poor Yorkshire mining community. His dad's left the family home years before being brought up by his mum and his half-brother, who's a nasty bully and sucks, basically. <laughs> Judd. His name's Judd. Good name anyway. for a bully. Yeah, it is. I thought that, actually. Um, it's like the one in Back to the Future. His name is Scut Farkas. Bully. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Um, so... So he's, you know, the younger of two children growing up in a single parent household with, I think there are references to the mum sort of, you know, struggling. She's not always at home when he comes home from school. He consequently doesn't always go to school. Um, so he's bullied by his, his brother, his teachers and his peers because he comes from a, uh, a poor background. He doesn't always have, you know, clean clothes or all of those sort of things that we often take for granted. Um, it follows his life at the point where he's looking at having to leave school and his only option is going to be going down the uh, coal mine or the pit like his older brother, which he doesn't want to do. Who would? Um, <laughs> Shocker. Yeah. <laughs> I believe that my dad started working in a mine uh, because his mother took him. <laughs> I think at, um, the ultimate betrayal. 
15 or 16, she was like, well, you've got to get a job. This is where you're going because that's that's where people go. So, and then she threw him down the mine. Threw him down a mine yeah. shaft. Yeah. yeah. Um, we digress, seriously. But anyway, so his options are that he might well end up being a coal miner, which he doesn't want to do. So that's quite sad. As a happy accidental distraction, he finds a kestrel nest on a farm and he decides that he's going to take care of this kestrel. He's going to train it. He's going to be, you know, he's going to do something different. And he like goes, you do. yeah, of course. You know what? Kids need distractions. But um, so he goes to a secondhand bookstore and tries to nick a book on falconry. Doesn't get away with that. Goes to the library and um, they're like, well, you know, you need a library card. He's like, oh, but um, I left it at home. He tries to bluff his way through it kind of thing. Anyway, he manages to borrow a book from the library on falconry and he teaches himself how to train this bird because um, kestrels are birds of prey, so you can train them, you know, to fly away and come back and do... I don't really know about falconry. What am I talking about? Um, Bird stuff. Yeah, Bird stuff, yeah. So this... And this kind of gives him the opportunity to, you know expand his his world i suppose give him a sort of opportunity for something to make him feel good um and this kind of comes back to him when he's in school one day because he um he gets to share having spent a significant amount of time with this kestrel and training it and looking at the book actually reading oh you know whatever gets kids reading we don't care Go steal a book from the library. (laughs) Read about birds. Don't steal a book from the library. Sorry, I take that one back. Um, (laughs) So he's in school and he shares the knowledge that he's um, gained from working with this kestrel and learning how to train it. Um, And he shares it in the classroom. His teacher is like blown away with how much he knows and everything. And so that gives him like a real confidence boost. So you've got to love that. Obviously, this is like part of the ugliness movement. It's not going to end happily, dear. Sorry. No chance. He So he's still taking care of the bird. And then one day his brother gives him some money to go put on a horse in the bookies. And instead of going to put this money on this horse, um, the character who's called Billy. Uh, no. Yeah, Billy Casper. Yeah. The character who's called Billy's decides he's going to take that money that his brother gave him and go buy some fish and chips. Why wouldn't you? If I was hungry. Yummy. Yum, yum, yum. So when his brother comes home, having heard that the horse won and he was due like winnings of £10 or something, which, you know, doesn't sound like a lot now, but this was a long time ago, goes absolutely mental. The brother goes mad. He he beats up on the kid and then he goes... Well, maybe this is a spoiler alert. I don't want to tell you all about the book. I think oh, I'm, I I'm get gonna tell you. good ideas. Well, so basically his brother goes for the thing that means the most to him and all that Billy can do for the closing scene of this story is bury his bird. This was also, like I said, made into a film in 1969. Um, and, okay, so I have to say this because it just tickled me when I looked into it. The actor who played Billy, the young lad, was David Bradley. David Bradley oh. played, who was it, George, in the Harry Potter films? Filch, the Filch, janitor. The, the janitor. He did, and he was also in um, Hot Fuzz. As the farmer with as the f- arsenal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it just seems hilarious to me that, like, probably about, I don't know, in his mid-teens, he played this young lad in this really what became an iconic film in the UK because it it sort of made a comment on the state of education and, you know, who gets the best opportunities. It wasn't just about this little boy finding a kestrel and that now he's grown into this, you know, world-renowned actor. So, yeah. So those are my sort of picks from this. And, and like you say, it is quite um, quite personal because a lot of these books I did read when I was younger. Um, another one I was going to mention is A Kind of Loving by Stan Barstow. And it's, a, it's about a young couples' relationships and the trials and tribulations of um, 
you know, starting living together, which, you know, that's a tale, a tale as old as time. I would recommend any of these books if you're interested in looking for something a little gritty, but also historical at this point. You know, this could have easily gone into our <laughs> historical fiction episode. But all of my memories of reading these books and have having had watched a couple of the films just um they they just they get me right here that there's you know i don't know why they feel something like home maybe i don't know i'm not gonna get sappy about it but i definitely <laughs> would recommend them and i did find it interesting doing the research that you know all of this came from an art museum the art museum art movement that maybe yeah. was in an art museum perhaps <laughs> uh, who the bloody hell knows i don't know but um <laughs> but yeah so there you go that's kitchen sink dramas for you in narrative form go look for some i mean oh i don't know george what's your take on that does it uh make you want to look into them or is it just interesting or do you think it it's like something that's repeated throughout time are we all sort of gonna rebel against social norms well, I think certainly, yeah, the the desire to distance yourself from a culture that dehumanizes you is pertinent now, certainly. Um, I love, I am a big fan of ugly stories. I like to, I like to call it ugly. It's like a very kind of self-recognition thing. Um, well, you're not I ugly. Remember, you're beautiful. I well, you're my mom. You're legally required to say that. Uh, the there's a great atmosphere album called uh, "God Loves Ugly." Um, but anyway, uh, I I loved doing an episode that was all history. How cool! I I I I know we talked about it before, and there's like certainly influences that the Ashcan movement and the kitchen sink realism movement have had on filmmakers who are still you know active today but the real meat of the movement uh sort of came to an end around about the start of the 70s right so it's interesting to see like the you know a, a completely referential development of art you know what i mean like the 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 rifting culture that happened for like 15 years and then sort of backed away i thought that was really interesting mom i'm pro i i am definitely against my better nature i do want to read a kestrel for a knave even though I, it feels like it would make me sad um it's really I mean, all these will probably make me sad yeah i'm not happy they're not i mean you know they're not happy but they are um they do make you think i think that that was what i got out of them as a teenager was that they did make me think about, mm -hmm. you know, and I think, you know, when you're young, maybe that was why they struck home as well, is because I was quite young when I read them. And, um, you know, just, you know, young people, teenagers, young adults, their early 20s and that are so sort of like passionate about everything. Everything is so big because your your life experience is quite short. And so anything that's like, you know, could become an issue, anything that you might have to face or deal with is like huge, you know. Yeah. And I, and I think maybe that's why it struck me also, you know, let's face it, being a teenager isn't always fun and any kind of escapism is always going to be good. Yeah. And the good news <laughs> is that continues for the rest of your life. So yeah, might as true. well get some practice reading in early. Yeah, so, you know, that's uh, Kitchen Sink Realism. I hope you enjoyed my little um, jump back through history. You know, if you're really interested in it, go look at it yourself and maybe you'll find some more accurate information than I did. <laughs> maybe find some inspirations in some paintings of sinks or bins or... Toilets. Toilets. Toilet <laughs> inspiration. Yeah. That's real. That's another band or book. <laughs> or band oh, book. Yeah. Thank you. Band books. Also a fan. Thank you so much, Mum, for doing the uh, research for this one. And uh, we will say to you good morning. Good, good afternoon. afternoon. Good evening. And good, good night. night. <laughs> Go tell some tales. We'll speak to you soon.
soon. Ciao.